Hi there, and welcome to the Sanctuary Podcast. Our vision is to find sanctuary in Christ, and then to be sanctuary to each other, and express sanctuary to this city. And so, for us, success is loving well, one person at a time. And if we can help you in any way, please do feel free to reach out, jump onto our website, sanctuarysf.com, and we would love to connect. Anyway, back to the podcast. Uh, if I was to ask you the question, what is your abiding memory or impression from your teenage years, what you might say? Now, for some of us, that's a long time ago, I know, but it's a formative time in our life. If I was to say, you know, teenage years, what comes to mind? You, some of you may say, uh, adventure, or perhaps Growing up, things changing, things shifting. As I thought about this question for myself, somewhat sadly, I, if I'm honest, I think the word that actually came to mind was shame. Shame. You know, on the surface of it, I looked relatively happy and successful. I went to an extremely prestigious boys' boarding school and um, in many ways did relatively well. But beneath the surface, when I look back on those years, interestingly, actually this deep sense of I'm not quite enough was really taking root. You know, I had really bad skin, acne. I had big, crazy glasses, big fuzzy hair, uh, zero confidence with women. Um, And it was just a really hard time. The school was filled with very wealthy people, and we didn't have much money as a family. And um, when I look back on that time, I, I, yeah, for me, shame was this, this quiet part of my life. And uh, the, the, the sad truth is, is that, you know, just getting older does not mean that shame automatically disappears, right? It's just not how it works. And it's very possible to be in the body of an adult, a 44-year-old man, and still to be carrying that deep sense of, I'm just, I'm not quite enough somehow. You can even be a Christian and actually up here believe in Jesus and yet actually in your body, in your bones, in your soul, somehow still feel like, I don't know, I carry around this quiet sense of not quite being enough. I think the world knows this, right? And the world wants to solve it. But the, the, the extra tragedy in this is that actually the the kind of solution that the world gives us doesn't ultimately actually help. It makes it worse. I think the issue ultimately is an issue of identity. Who actually am I? And the world basically says the way to solve shame is through running after some kind of label, some kind of identity, right? San Francisco, we're filled, we're filled with this pursuit of a label. I'm the bus- successful businessy person. That's my label. Or I'm the wealthy person. Or I'm this super clever person. Or I'm the beautiful person. Or I'm the athletic person. There's hundreds of identities, labels that this world gives us that are actually quite attractive unconsciously because it, it feels like maybe that will make me feel enough, right? But here's the key. Here's the the snag, actually what actually happens is with any of the labels the world gives us, it either leads to pride if you think you're being super mum or whatever the label might be, which is not a great place to be, right? Pride, 
Bit of a problem, the Bible says. Or the other state it tends to lead to is despair. When you feel like in some way you're not living up to what that label is telling you to be. And so we tend to pendulate like this, up and down and up and down with, with us whenever we feel like we aren't really enough defined by that label, we can actually feel pretty despairing. Now, I don't want to depress us today, don't worry, but I do want us to understand that this issue is driving much of many people's lives in the city in which we live. But the good news is, as we turn to the book of Ephesians, is that actually this is not a new problem at all. Hallelujah? And when the Apostle Paul is writing to this church in, uh, in Ephesus, what he's wanting to say to them in these opening chapters again and again and again to normal people like me and you who would have inevitably felt actual issues of shame growing up and into our lives, he's saying to them, listen, when you became a Christian, you weren't just like tweaked. It wasn't like you changed political party. Oh, I used to follow the warriors and now someone else. You know, it's like everything changed. Your very identity before God changed forever. And what that means is now shame is no longer appropriate. It is not appropriate. In terms of our title today, you can, and in fact, you must learn to appropriately love yourself. Not in a sinful, narcissistic way, but in a way that agrees with now how God sees you. It's glorious. I don't know if you know that about Christianity, but that is what it is. And today in Ephesians 2, uh, verse 10, if you could turn there in your Bibles, this is one of my absolute favorite bits where Paul, he says these amazing words. Read with me. Verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are his workmanship. There's two keys here that we're going to look at that are profoundly practical in terms of freeing us every day, bit by bit, from the, from the crushing sense of shame that so many of us quietly and secretly carry. Number one, he says here, we are his work. Can we say that after three? One, two, three. We are his work. We'll spend a few moments looking at that. But then, in the same sentence, he adds a new piece. Number two, he says, we are his workmanship. Different emphasis. Can we say that as well after three? One, two, three. We are his workmanship. So the big idea that Paul is trying to say to a people who would have also struggled with that sense of, I don't know if I'm quite enough, i.e. shame, he's saying you need to understand two fundamental things. Number one, you are the very work of God himself that God is very active in working on you. And that starts to dissolve shame very quickly. But number two, who you are before him. If you could just glimpse a little bit of how heaven actually sees you and not how you see yourself and others see you, it would change everything. You are his workmanship. Okay, so let's look at those two things. First, looking at God and his activity. And then secondarily, at how God now sees every Christian alive today. First of all, then, look with me here in verse 10. For we are his work. 
Now, Paul is really emphasizing a particular person. In fact, throughout Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. If you were to read Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, who is the main person in those opening chapters? God. And he says it here. He says, look, for we are his, that's God, his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, that's God again, second time for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So the first idea here, as we think about God freeing us to be more and more free from the clutches of shame is this, is that we need to understand the Christian faith is fundamentally about the activity, the work, the identity, the commitment of somebody else, not you and me. Hallelujah. It's fundamentally a, a, uh, a, you know, someone said, what's the difference between Christianity and religion? Religion is fundamentally still about you, about how you're trying hard to be good enough. Christianity, according to C.S. Lewis, it says it's all about grace. It's about who God is. You know, we are not a people of the ladder, right, trying hard to get up to God. We're a people of the cross. We're a people who celebrate who God is and what God has done. Mystery upon mystery that God became flesh and walked this earth working really hard for you and me. Before he, we were even born, God was metaphorically working up a sweat for you and me. Now, this is profound because, you see, most of us hear that and go, oh, yeah, that's nice. But our actual lives feel like we are needing to actually do quite a lot of work. Thank you, Tom. You know, I'm having to pick up my Bible. I'm having to think to pray. I'm having to kind of steal myself and keep working hard throughout this life. And honestly, the last few years, for all of us, man, they have not been easy, right? I mean, obviously COVID, 100,000 people living in San Francisco in the Bay. And for those part of Authentic, walking through the devastating uh, incident of, of Greg's passing. You know, we can feel, actually, Tom, you say that God is at work but it doesn't feel like that. Anyone here ever uh, brave enough to, to say, yeah, it's, I sometimes feel like actually, I don't know if I believe he's at work. feels like I'm very aware of my work. And so that's why Paul is saying, no, no, no. Listen, you see, one of the problems of shame is that shame isolates. It says to you, you are not only not enough, but you are alone in terms of having to try and solve it. Oh, it's so wicked. That lie, you are not enough. And there's 101 different kind of sources of where shame can come. I mean, this, it can be your birth order. You grow up and I don't feel like I'm enough because I'm in my family, I'm, I'm this, I'm, I'm the second or I'm the youngest or I was an accident. Or your race can make you feel shame. Your gender can, can cause this birthing of shame. It could be the fact about your financial upbringing, your lack of education. There are so many ways in which we can feel, I am not enough and I am alone and I have to somehow solve this. And that's why when we come back to what he's saying, he's, listen, he's like looking at each of our eyes, my beloved, he's saying, you are my work for we are his work. 
that God is very active even now through all things, always working all things for the good of those who are called according to his purposes. Hallelujah. So that he might be, we might be the first, but he might be the first one among many that we would be conformed to the image of his son. So the, the Christian faith is, 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 is that we believe that there is a God who is profoundly active. We are not self-made people. I mean, we work hard in our lives and God willing make good choices. But every good and perfect gift comes from him. Every good and perfect gift. We are not Christians fundamentally because we are in a quote-unquote Christian country. If you're a Christian here today, the Bible, and that's why he says you were created in Christ Jesus. You are literally, listen to me, a new creation. You're not a tweaked creation. Oh, I used to be about like this and I'm gradually... No, no, no. The Bible says the difference between you being a non-Christian and now you coming to know God is of a massive, cosmically significant order. You are a literal new creation. So it's like, you know, I was once a guinea pig and now I'm a lion. Okay? You're a totally different animal. It's not like once I was a guinea pig and now I'm sort of an older guinea pig and I'm changing. But, you know, you are, God sees you and he sees you in Christ Jesus. You are created in Christ Jesus. John Stott, the British theologian, he says it this way. He says it's like God, before he made anything, he put you in his mind together with Jesus and said, ah, yes. Now that, that works. Tom Shaw on his own? Mm, not so much. Tom Shaw with Jesus, created in Christ Jesus. Now that, that works. You see, often, if you were a Christian from even a young age, sometimes it doesn't feel like God did that much, right? Some of you here today, you've kind of always sort of believed. And so, well, it's hard to even access this sense of excitement that God is actually at work in some sort of dramatic way, Tom. I don't really feel like that. But the reality is the Bible says <laughs> that it is God. And if he who began a good work in you, he is faithful and he will continue it. That it is God who created us from death to life. My big brother recently, Martin, who's 50, who is an academic, brilliant man, taught at Stanford for seven years, mythologist, he's kind of a new age kind of guru, very popular in the Bay. He, a few months ago, radically and out of the blue, came to know Jesus Christ. He called me just after his birthday. I had no idea this was coming. And he was like, hey, Tom, did a little, and he said, guess what? I became a Christian. And I was, I, I have never been in such shock in all my life. I couldn't kind of catch my breath. For 24 years since I became a Christian, I have been praying, God, 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 God. And this is the big idea. Yes, there were things that he could say he did. He read his Bible and he talked to people. But ultimately, it was God who did it. God at work in his timing and in his way. It was funny because there was this moment where he was in interviewed by this lady. Um, and she asked him a question. And he said, at the beginning of, the, of my answer, I was a non-Christian. Two and a half minutes later, by the time I finished my answer, I knew I was a Christian. I knew I believed. I don't know how it happened, but somehow faith came to me. Faith just came to me. You may know the story of C.S. Lewis, you know, the Chronicles of Narnia guy, after years of discussions with Tolkien, who wrote Lord of the Rings in the pub. And then one day, C.S. Lewis said he got in the sidecar 
of the motorbike, and he started the journey as a non-Christian. And by the time he got to the destination, he knew he was born again. He knew he was a Christian. God, ultimately, even though we are involved, it is God who works. Hallelujah. So even if you were a tiny little child in Sunday school and you can't remember that moment, all thanks to God that if you know Jesus, if you love Jesus, that is a greater miracle than anything that could ever occur. It is breathtaking. And this is massively important. This is like dynamite to blow up shame. When you feel like, oh, I'm just this, da, da, da. no, 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 you start with saying, God is for you and God is working for you and he died for you. Which means that the, the day that you first came to know faith and throughout your life as he sustains you, we have to understand we are his work. You are not alone at any point in your life. The God of the universe is looking at you and he's not working begrudgingly. You know, when there's someone that you love, work can actually become something you want to do. Even old stingebag Tom, occasionally on a Saturday, likes to make pancakes for my daughters and for my wife. There's a tiny bit of work involved. It's not a hardship. And it says in the Bible, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Oh, friends, what a God! What a God! That's how we can rest. That's how we can Sabbath. That's how we can take the hands off the wheel of life, ultimately. Us control freaks and go, oh, I'm going to trust him. Because if he started this whole thing, he's sustaining this whole thing, and he will carry me, ultimately, into glory. Oh, friends, the Christian God is one who says, listen, you know, to create planet Earth, it didn't cost God anything. He just spoke. But think about this, to create a single part of the new creation, i.e. a Christian, to create someone who actually loves him and calls on his name, that cost God everything. It cost him dying. That is the level of his work. For you to sit here today, no matter how ordinary you feel, and to go, I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. All of heaven is like, wow, Jesus, you died and rose again and poured out the Spirit so that that could happen. You know, this is stunning. This is how God sees you. You are His work. Can I have a hallelujah? Hallelujah. I know, I'm British. I don't get too excited easily. But occasionally, I show emotion. And it is appropriate. We are, number one, his work, and therefore shame is not appropriate. But number two, it actually gets even better, because he then adds this other part to it. He says, but we are his workmanship. His workmanship. In some translations, in the NIV, it says we're his handiwork. It's beautiful. In the NLT, it says we are his masterpiece. Oh, I love that. In the Greek, the word is poema, and it's used to describe poems, they are, his, they are a masterpiece, or a, pe a piece of literary prose, or an art art artifact, or even that word is designed and sometimes used to describe the making of a crown. Wow. You're my crown. <laughs> Hallelujah! I mean, come on, the Christian faith is so wonderful. It's been so robbed of this. So many of our friends and our neighbors think of Christianity as this, well, this, you know, I've got to say no to all this stuff, and it's all about being moral and just going to church, right? 
How different is it? It's this, this God of this universe, this kind God, who gave everything, his son, his only son, so that he could say, you are my masterpiece. I mean, it's, I mean I'm not being dismissive to myself, but I don't often feel like a, a masterpiece. The older I get, and the grayer I get, and the slightly wider I get, the idea, <laughs> this kind of equation that God would give his only son to die and to rise again. And what does he get? We get God. And he gets me. Poor God. <laughs> right? But God doesn't see it like this. No, no, no. Shh, shh, sure. Shush, sure. You're my masterpiece. You're my masterpiece. Friends, this is huge because, again, when you think about it, most of us grow up and we don't feel for whatever reason, that is the message that gets into our body, into our bones, into our soul, into our minds. And, you know, often as parents, you can do your best to put that essence in your children's lives. But for whatever reason, we can often grow up feeling, again, at the least just very mediocre, nowhere near a masterpiece. And again, there's so many different reasons that this can come. I, uh, had this experience a few years ago where one of my daughters went to a, uh, a church. Um, she was at kids kids work, and as she came out, she had tied her little T-shirt like you know, like girls do sometimes, like this. She was very young. She came out. She was all excited, you know. She had this cool little. She had a great time, and she'd done this little fashionable thing. And I was like, "Hey, honey, how are you?" And as she came out, I glanced around, and at that exact second, one of her friends looked at her looked her up and down, and just sneered. This this kind of, look at you. And in that split second, my daughter's whole countenance, shame. Oh, and I wanted to weep. And I wanted to kind of dive in between that other girl and my beautiful daughter and go, no, don't, what are you doing? Don't listen to her. And I, I said to the Lord, I was like, Lord, how could she, who's so beautiful, possibly be affected and let that shame come in from someone like her? Just another girl, you know, not my daughter. <laughs> and then I felt the Spirit say, you've been doing that, Tom, for 40 years. You're equivalent to being more aware of other people's horizontal sneers or what you think are sneers than how you God, your God sees you. God sees you as his masterpiece. He sees us as his masterpiece. And this is quite breathtaking, particularly if you know the book of Ephesians, because what's really stunning, in, in Ephesians chapter 4 and 5, Paul gets really honest with them. At the beginning, he's like, you're God's masterpiece. And they're like, yay! And then, <laughs> and then in Ephesians 4 and 5, he says to them, some of you are thieves. Some of you are like really angry. Some of you are struggling with lust and falling badly. Some of you are blaspheming the Spirit. And he just goes through all these things. And you're like, wait a minute, Paul. I thought you said that they were God's masterpiece. How, these people who are as sinful and broken as this, how on earth can they possibly be God's masterpiece? You know, I identify with some of those struggles. I identify with the battle against lust and against anger and against fudging the truth. Surely the thing is, I can't be a masterpiece if, if that's me as well. And it's like Paul says, no, 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 no. 
No, no, I don't want to hear that. Even though they are broken and sinful and make many mistakes, somehow now through your union in Christ Jesus, you are a created thing. All of God and all of heaven continues to say, masterpiece, masterpiece. Even when you fail, masterpiece, masterpiece. Even when we make mistakes and we sin and we think, surely God no longer can call me his beloved, masterpiece. You're my masterpiece. This is the grace of God. Remember what we celebrate week upon week? That our righteousness, our standing before God is no longer based on our own efforts, on how well we're doing, but on the efforts and the perfection of another man called Jesus Christ. Hallelujah, this is the work of God, that he calls us masterpiece. So today, where is it that there may be some secret shame in your life? Some sense of, I'm just not quite enough. When I look at these other people, I just think, oh yeah, I don't know if I'm quite enough in that way. These last few years, I'll be honest, goodness me, the, you know, moving everything from England and saying goodbye to grandparents and then moving again after living in the Central Valley for two years and coming to a pandemic and many of our friends transitioning and leaving the city and just, you know, there's been so many times where Josie and I have felt so weak, so weak and anything but a masterpiece. <laughs> we just felt very weak and, and fragile and very unimpressive. But our God, our God today I believe he wants to look at us and say, I understand that. I understand that horizontal comparison, that, that human earthly thing. But the reason you're here, O oh church, is to get a fresh taste of heaven's perspective. Of how all of heaven sees you. If you know Christ, if you know Christ, if you are in Christ, then our righteousness, our sense of acceptance and how our God delights in us and loves us is forever forever sealed by the work of another man. And what does that mean? Well, finally, what it means, this is why he says we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. For good works, which God prepared hand before, beforehand that we might walk in them. You see, when you are living under shame, one of the things it does is it just paralyzes you, right? Some of us are like, oh, I could never do that. You know, I couldn't do this. Oh, I see the guys at the front. Oh, you're confident. You obviously don't struggle with those things. And that's actually a lie. Friends, all of us, the body of Christ, extroverts, introverts, old, young, rich, poor, all of us, all of us who know Jesus, he says, you are my masterpiece. That's why he loves the church. He doesn't see all of the stuff that we always see. He chooses in his glory and his grace. I still love my church. I haven't given up on my church. Yes, I know the church at this time in our nation hasn't got a great reputation, but our Lord says, you are still my masterpiece. You're still my bride. You're still my beloved. And so we must say, well, Lord, what are the good works then? And you see, when you start to get this in your bones, I'm his, I'm his masterpiece. In fact, let's, why don't we just say that together. Practice with me. One, two, three. I'm his masterpiece. One, two, three. I am his masterpiece. In fact, turn to the person next to you and gently point at them with love and say, you are his masterpiece. You see, as this starts to get into you, I can, even though I've failed, right? Even though I'm limited, 
I'm just a normal guy with so many limits, okay? <laughs> Nothing special humanly. But some reason, my God in heaven calls me his masterpiece. My friends, this is profound. And it enables us to start to have a go and to start to step out and to take a risk, to do these good works, to do these good works. And I love that idea there. He's saying the more that the smile of the Father and you knowing he is your masterpiece, the more that you know that's in your heart, the more you're able to step out even if you think you might fail. Hallelujah. That's what you see in the early church. They were just going for it. Why? Because they knew they were his beloved. They didn't take themselves too seriously anymore because I'm his masterpiece. I'm his master. He's always going to think that of me, even if you don't. <laughs> Hallelujah. It sets me free. It sets me free to have a go and not to be paralyzed by needing to be perfect. In his grace, I'm forever changed. And that's why he says, what are the good works authentic and sanctuary? What are the good works that God has got for you individually and got for us? You see, the more his smile gets into you, you start to get going again. Amen? When his, his kindness is actually deep in you. With that story of my daughter, just to finish it, when she was all sad, I did what any parent would do. I said, hey, honey, look at me, look at me. And I actually gently grabbed her little face and, and, and forced her to look into mine. Says, You're amazing. You're absolutely beautiful and wonderful. I'm so proud of you. I couldn't be prouder. And as I did that, her shoulders went back. She started to enjoy her little outfit again. <laughs> and she was like, thanks, Dad. Good work. She's, she's off again. Yeah? For some of you here today, your father's saying, hey, I'm actually pretty firm that if there's shame coming to you, I'm standing against that today. He's not passive. He's saying, if you're carrying shame, today is the day of healing. Today is the day of actual one more step of freedom. It's nearly always a process. One more step. He is for me. And if he, he who is for me, who can be against me? Man, if that can just get into my bones, 1% into my being, then we can be a people who give ourselves. And my final point is this. You know the first good work? And notice he says good works. They might not be famous works. They might not be well-paid works. <laughs> but if they're works that God has got for you, man, they're good. They may be secret and humble and practical and servant. God's like, yes, go on, son. Go on, daughter. I'm so proud of you. Oh, and you start to live your life for the audience of someone else. He sees me. He already thinks I'm his masterpiece and he's got all these good works. No one else is seeing, but I'm pleasing my father. But you know, perhaps the first good work I want us to think about before any other is the good work of learning to actually agree with his love for you. Before we get busy out there, please, please let us decide. No, it is biblical to love myself. Not in a sinful, narcissistic way, but to agree that if God is working hard for me and God sees me as his masterpiece, well, what option do I have? But to agree with him and to say, I'm learning to love myself. That is a good work many of us never do. But when that starts to happen, every day at four o'clock now, or well most days, I walk my dog. That's my new spiritual practice. And I walk beans, my dog. We go in the woods. 
And I literally out loud start to say, well done, Tom. Well done for this. Well done for that. Well done for this. And I'm agreeing with my father. Yes, prayer to him, but also learning to love and care for Tom Shaw. You know what happens? It really does profoundly affect the whole of our being. Should we stand to our feet? Can I invite us to stand? We're going to sing a song of response. There's a wonderful song current at the moment. Some of you might know it. It's called Graves into Gardens. I love that image. And he says, I'm not afraid to show you my weaknesses, my failures and flaws. Lord, you've seen them all and you still call me your masterpiece. Actually, the line is friend, but I couldn't help but tweak it. If you know that song, it's a, it's a great um, speaking of the truth of how God now sees us. And that, that, that experience of where you feel safe, to be honest with the Lord about your failures and your flaws, that is the way, the soil in which graves start to turn.